Well, welcome again to City Life. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, if that's allowed. I don't know if that's allowed. Happy Thanksgiving, 48 hours after. Those people that police when you can put up the Christmas tree, they probably got the rules for that too. You can ask them. I don't know. <laughs> but happy Thanksgiving. Welcome back from Thanksgiving. I know some of you got in like we did last night. Some of you maybe got in today. Uh, maybe some of you didn't travel at all. And maybe some of you are podcasting right now because on Saturday you were still with family. But uh, we love all of you. Uh, I hope you did have a great Thanksgiving. Um, but I do love, as I shared a couple weeks ago, I love Thanksgiving because it's this maybe 24-hour period, we kind of pivot a little bit from entitlement to gratitude and thanksgiving. I'm always thinking, man, how can we extend this? How can we make this longer? Because nothing pushes me from remembering what I'm thankful for around that Thanksgiving dinner table to remembering the fall of man in Genesis, like watching, you know, maybe it's mom's putting each other in full Nelsons, trying to get Tickle Me Elmo's at the neighborhood Walmart, or men trampling each other, trying to get to a TV that's on clearance that they can even pronounce the maker. Like, I usually get that footage and start digesting that footage before I've even digested the Thanksgiving meal. And sometimes I think, man, can we just extend this holiday a little longer? Because, like, where, where Raj is from, Raj is from India. So, like, weddings out there last three days, five days a week easy. Like, that's just the norm. Holly is their, like, a festival holiday that brings in the spring. It's the Festival of Colors, and uh, that's a week, right? They know how to, to let a party continue, and, and I've talked about it before. In our culture, we're really, really good at anticipating the holiday and drawing out the anticipation because it helps us advertise more, right? It, it, it sows into our consumer culture, but we can be so quick to move on. Soon as we've eaten Thanksgiving dinner and we've taken that nap, right, we wake up, it's Christmas time. There's already Christmas stuff on the shelves. <laughs> There's already those commercials with the Mercedes Benz and the giant bow on them. And I sometimes think, man, can we just extend it a, a little bit? And uh, it's not just a, a, a Hindi thing or, or the other side of the world where celebrations last longer. The church calendar, the church that's right under our noses, or the calendar that's right under our noses, but we so often don't really pay attention to, it's centered on and structured on five seasons, Advent, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. And each one of these celebrations and, and each one of these meditations on what it means to us as a believer lasts months, right? It, it's a celebration that, that extends into each season. But again, most of us, we, we're not checking our liturgical calendars each day, but it could serve useful. In our culture where we rush from holiday to holiday or celebration to celebration and we don't pause. And when we don't pause, we can end up empty and hungover instead of filled and fulfilled as we step out of one season and into the next. But the thing is, you're not going to find Thanksgiving on the church calendar, right? It's not a, I was talking to somebody before service, it's not a holiday we get from the Bible or scripture. It's not even global, right? Thanksgiving is based on American history, history here in America but the concept of Thanksgiving is biblical, right? It's throughout Scripture, dozens of times in Scripture. Depending on the translation you read, over 30 times in Scripture, it talks about being thankful. It tells us to practice Thanksgiving. In Psalm 100, it talks about how we're supposed to step into God's presence with Thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. So you'll hear people talk about how that's the password into God's presence. It's the key to unlock the door to his presence, all these different things. So all our prayers should be full of thankfulness then, right? wrong, <laughs> but we'll get there. We'll get to that. But as we rush out of Thanksgiving, I want to look at what you could call in Scripture as the unthanksgiving, 
or the reverse Thanksgiving, or as Steph was calling it, the upside-down Thanksgiving. Because the, the, the spirit of this chapter of Scripture is one of unthankfulness rather than thankfulness. And hopefully it can teach us a lot, not just about Thanksgiving, but what you could call thanksgiving, right? Taking the holiday of Thanksgiving and actually living it daily. Because Scripture, again, encourages us to do just that. But this account, it's not in American history. It's in Israel's history. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel, at the heart of their history, something they looked back on again and again was this exodus from slavery in Egypt, where they had been from hundreds of years and God delivered them miraculously from Egypt. That's their flight across the Atlantic to America. Although it wasn't a flight, it was in boats. But uh, for them, they were going across this wilderness to the promised land. And along the way, they don't have a declaration of independence as much as at Mount Sinai, they make a declaration of dependence on God, a covenant with the God that had just delivered them. And it's here at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 that God speaks to his people for the first time. He's basically sharing for the first time his full heart for who they were and how they should live. And he says in Exodus 19, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is profound when you look at a map of the promised land because he wanted to park his people, a nation of people who would be holy. And it's basically surrounded by the great civilizations and nations of that day or the ones that would soon rise up. And what God was trying to do is put at the heart of this region a holy nation that all these other nations could look at and say, wow, that's the love of God that he has for his people and that he has for the world. As we know, they trip up and fail again and again and This passage is a part of that. But I wanted to note that calling as we're going to come back to it. But it's after Sinai. They've been wandering through the wilderness. This is their first trip to the promised land. So it's a generation that had been delivered from Egypt. And it's in Numbers chapter 11 that we get to the passage I want to read tonight. And I'm going to read Numbers 11, verses 1 through 15, and then 31 through 34. Numbers 11, 1 through 15, and then 31 through 34. It's a decent portion. Buckle up. If you don't have a Bible, there's, there's a Bible under your seat. You probably get there before I finish reading. <laughs> oh, don't have lights. You can use a flashlight on your phone. <laughs> it says in verse 1, Soon the people began to complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. Funny how that works, right? It says, Then the Lord's anger blazed against them. And he sent a fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people screamed to Moses for help. And when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. After that, the area was known as Tibera, which means the place of burning, because fire from the Lord had burned among them there. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain, oh, for some meat. That's what I was saying before Thanksgiving dinner. They exclaimed, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. And the manna looked like small coriander seeds, and it was pale yellow like gum resin. The people would go out and gather it from the ground. Then they made flour by grinding it with hand mills or pounding it into mortars. Then they boiled it in a pot and made it into flat cakes. These cakes... Cakes tasted like pastries baked with olive oil. The manna came down on the camp with the dew during the night. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining, 
And the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They are whining to me, saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Anybody ever prayed that? Do me a favor and spare me this misery. So Moses prays this prayer, full of raw emotion. God answers his prayer. The first thing he does is, is Moses is carrying this vast weight. God pours his spirit out on leaders to help Moses with the task at hand, and then he addresses his whole meat issue. Verse 31, it says, the Lord sends quail. It says, now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction, there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. They spread the quail all around the camp to dry, but while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. So that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of gluttony, because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. Graves of gluttony. So let's stand as we confess all the gluttony we partook in this week. You know, I'm just kidding. You can sit down. <laughs> but before the gluttony in this passage came craving. And the source of that craving was complaining, griping, or as many translations call it, grumbling, the opposite of thanksgiving, called the unthanksgiving because the common emotion here was unthankfulness. There are also a lot of parallels, like the menu was quails. Got this bad boy, right? This is almost about to scale. I was, you know, reading up on them. And uh, quails are in the same family of birds, ground-loving birds as turkeys, chickens, the partridge family, right? <laughs> uh, quails are in the exact same breed of birds. Now, I've never had quail. I would think maybe it's not too far from turkey or chicken. You throw a little gravy on it. Maybe you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Uh, but like the pilgrims in New England, the Israelites were traveling through a foreign wilderness, and this here was their unthanksgiving meal. And again, mind you, this was their first approach to the promised land through the wilderness. This generation had just seen the miracles that got them out of Egypt. This generation had seen the Red Sea parted. This generation had seen water come out of rocks. They had seen miracle after miracle, and chief among the miracles was this manna we read about, right? A substance that would gather on the ground for them to gather and eat. And Numbers 11 says it was like coriander seed and looked like resin. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> Translation, it was sustaining, it was sufficient, but it was far from exciting. This is what they were eating every day, miraculously, to keep them going, but this is what they were eating every day. So in Numbers 11, finally, we get the first complaining and grumbling in the entire book of Numbers. Right? This is the first time in Numbers that we get the Israelites complaining. It says they complain with an earshot of God, which newsflash, that's everywhere. Right? The New Living Translation accurately puts it, the Lord heard everything they said. And it escalates to the point where, where not just the people that had come with them from Egypt were trying to go back to Egypt, but the Israelites 
were saying, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather go back to Egypt. Let's not forget what was going on in Egypt. Again, enslaved, beaten, whipped, their own sons being ripped from their arms and killed. Right? This is what they were living in in Egypt. Oh, but we had meat. I love meat, but I'm not crazy. <laughs> right? How quickly complaining in a negative spirit, if, if we let it escalate and snowball, can rob us of all perspective. Right? And God hears. God hears them complaining. So he sends them some airmailed quail. It's like a blue apron shipment, but to the middle of the wilderness for like a million people. And he airmails it with a literal wind that says blows in from the sea. And in the, the inclusion of homers, uh, some translation, sorry, this poor guy. <laughs> the, inclusion, the inclusion of homers, or as some translations say, uh, bushels, right? It gives us a measurement. So it's about 105 million of these birds. And that, according to some commentaries, is a uh, conservative estimate, 105 million quail. And maybe you scoff at this picture and say, what, what is this? But that's actually like quail migrate regularly from Africa to Asia through this Sinai region. And you look at these birds, right? Short, chunky, small wings. Unless there's a prevailing wind to sustain them, they have to land for long periods of time. So all these birds migrating, and they got to land a lot. There's actually a time in the 1900s where Arabs in the, uh, excuse me, Sinai Peninsula used nets to catch two million. So two million, multiply that by like 50, and time it perfectly with the Israelites complaining about a lack of meat, and you've basically got numbers 11. It says that they ate quail for weeks until they had it coming out of their noses, and maybe you're like, it's a figure of speech, right? When I was eating Thanksgiving dinner, my uncle said he had turkey coming out of his ears, right? We talk about that. It says there was coming out of their noses. But we see that this was a plague. Most likely it included some form of food poisoning. It's quite possible that statement is literal as well. So ultimately we see that these quail flew into this camp not as a delicacy, but as kamikazes, right? The Israelites wanted gravy and ended up in graves of gluttony, which is what they called this camp when they finally left. Maybe you're asking, why would God do this, right? Like, what gives? Why would he send this plague of, of quail? Is the desire for meat bad? No. Can I get an amen? Desire for meat is not bad. Or we'd all be in trouble after Thanksgiving, right? Acts 10, 13, rise, kill, and eat. That's like my life verse, basically. In verse 7, when they say, oh, for some meat, I feel seen. Like, I feel that on a soul level, right? When they're craving meat in this chapter, when I'm fasting for extended periods of time, if I'm fasting for like a week, the first thing I crave is a hamburger patty. I don't know, what, what is it for you? Like when you're craving for days, like what's the first thing you're like, oh, I would kill for some? Pizza? Yeah, it's probably on top three. French fries, right. For me, it's the hamburger patty. Doesn't even be a good one, just grilled, greasy. It's a whole rabbit trail. <laughs> but God has never sent kamikaze quail mail to my doorstep to take me out because I had some craving for some meat. Complaining in Numbers 11 is way more than a simple craving for meat. It's a rebellious refusal to trust God that had them ready to stop following him. They had God's presence in their camp, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, right? They were ready to say, peace, I'm going back to slavery because we had meat there. And it was more than just the meat. It was this unwillingness to trust God. We talked about in, in the worship set, 
over his miracle menu options, right? Over the miraculous manner, like, I would love some meat. But what's sobering is the fact that up to this point in the book of Numbers, there is, there's no trace of complaining. So how does it spiral so fast? How does it go from zero to 60 to the point where people are being struck down by a plague in but one chapter? Could that happen to us? Maybe I'm not even complaining right now, but could that happen to me? The apostle Paul would say, yes. You know, the word used for complaining in Old Testament scripture is grumbling in many of our translations. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word for grumbling is used throughout the Old Testament as it talks about the Israelites grumbling quite a bit. But it only occurs sparingly in the Greek New Testament because the New Testament was written in Greek and only once in the writings of Paul. And that happens in Philippians 2, verses 4 through 15, where Paul writes, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Now, I was using a familiar analogy that if you've been in church for weeks or years, you've heard before, just being a light. The analogy of shining bright for Christ, being a light in dark places. And we adopt this analogy and we run with it because oftentimes we can keep it pretty vague. We just talk about being a light. I'm trying to be a light to my family. I'm trying to be a light to my neighborhood, trying to be a light to my city. But again, how we're being a light, just trying to be like Jesus, man. Be the best person I can be and be a light. Paul doesn't leave it vague at all. Paul gets really specific about how he wants God's people to be a light. He says, don't complain and don't argue. His use of the Greek word for grumbling, it points back to the Old Testament text where it's used again and again, including in Numbers 11, verse 1, which we read tonight. And Paul doubles down on this emphasis using the same language from Deuteronomy from what's known as the Song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. It's in 32.5 where Moses says, they are not his children, but a crooked and perverse generation. Paul pulls from this, writing that. He's saying, look, your fulfillment of your calling is at stake. The same way it was for the Israelites. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives an extensive account of the ways that the Israelites stumbled before having, as he says, their bodies scattered all over the wilderness. And he says in verses 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, don't grumble as some of them did. They were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. The message version says, I love it, what Eugene Peterson says, these are all warning markers, danger, in our history books written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They're at the beginning, we at the end, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You can fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Our call is the same as these Israelites. We're God's people, called by him to glorify him, be a light for him, be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Even Peter points to those exact words at Sinai for the church. And our weakness and our ability to fall flat on our faces in this calling is the same, right? We need to take heed of the warning markers given to us by the Old Testament account in Numbers 11 and others, the ones given to us by Paul. Because Numbers 11 escalation, Numbers 11's escalation from complaining's introduction to the complainer's destruction should give a serious pause. Because I don't know about you, Steph can confirm, I complain. 
from time to time. And I don't want that to derail my witness. So what are some lessons, if you, like me, complain from time to time about how we can best complain? Because we're all going to complain, right? We're all broken. We're all sinful. And what does God desire from us? And how can we avoid Numbers 11? And the first perspective I pull from this chapter is that complaining often, not always, but often, it overshadows something that we can be thankful for. Again, think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. In Egypt, they were slaves being whipped, beaten, oppressed, killed. Again, their young boys were killed in this massive genocide. And you couldn't just, like, complain to your slave driver, right? You do that, they're just going to beat you harder and drive you harder. It's exactly what we see happen in Exodus 5 when Moses is like, hey, can we take a break, go out into the wilderness and worship God? Pharaoh's like, no, you're lazy. What we're going to do is stop providing you with straw and keep you with the same quota and beat you just as hard. You don't complain to your slave drivers. You're a slave. But it says in Exodus 2 that when they cried out to God, when they groaned to God, he heard their cry. And that's when the Exodus began. He began to send Moses and work these miracles. And they were set free in Exodus. They were so free that they were free to complain. Right? Their own complaining about the conditions of their new freedom were indicative of the freedom they were walking in. Their complaining overshadowed the reality that they were no longer being beaten or whipped and killed when they complained in Egypt. You know, sometimes I, as I was studying for this sermon, I was thinking about, like, my pet answers for when people ask me, like, how are you doing? I'm, I don't, like, Nate, you ask how you doing. He's like, living the dream, right? That's his pet answer. Me, sometimes, like, man, I'm tired. Man, I've been so busy. You know, you just automatically drift that way. And often I'm tired because I'm working a job that I love. Or I'm so busy because I'm working to provide for the wife and son that I love. But it's so easy to drift that way. Or if I've been fixing the house or the car, it's fixing a house or a car that I've been blessed richly with. And when my son is wearing me out, it's the same son that I spent seasons of my life on my knees praying for. Like, we're not perfect, but Steph and I try to hold each other accountable. That We're not going to complain about Raj on Facebook. Like, oh, we're tired, or he was doing this. Can you believe he, didn't, he did this or that? The poop stories we could tell. Like, like, we don't do any of that, right? We try not to at least complain, and we're not perfect in it because we prayed for him for years. And so often we pray for something, and, you know, the, the blessings of God often come with responsibilities. Big responsibilities come with big blessings. And so often we'll get the blessing we've been praying for, and then we start complaining about all the responsibilities when it's overshadowing the, the blessing we have. Some of us need to stop lamenting the responsibilities and start counting those blessings again. We get the position we've been praying for, we've been asking for, and then we start complaining about the weight of it. Or we, or we get the blessing we prayed for and start complaining about the responsibilities. We let our perspective get robbed far too often. Maybe it doesn't snowball as fast as Numbers 11 does, but thanks living, <laughs> living Thanksgiving means that we can embrace the blessings and the responsibilities that come with the package. The family, including the kid that likes to wake up India time at 2 a.m. randomly and stay up all night, right? The, the home, including the roof that needs to be replaced. The job, including the random extra hours. Because, again, those big complaints are often overshadowing big blessings. All right, so what's the application? Never complain, only give thanks. Otherwise, keep your mouth shut? No. But recognize the blessings. Recognize the blessings, but then always be honest with God. You know, sure, we, we mentioned it earlier. David says, enter his courts with thanksgiving. And I've heard people say that, 
because of this verse, Thanksgiving is like the key that unlocks the door into the presence of God. Only Jesus already unlocked that door at the cross, and he doesn't lock it every day. <laughs> he doesn't make us reopen it every day by, by our works or our thanksgiving. No, Jesus opened that door to God's presence, and he left it open for us. He holds it open for us. All right? Show me the thanksgiving in Moses' prayer, <laughs> the one we read in, in Numbers 11. He says, I'm aggravated. And he just rolls from there until he's like, kill me. Just kill me, right? Sounds like a tilting teenager. You have one too many chores. You know, the same David that wrote, enter God's courts with thanksgiving in Psalm 100, he also writes in Psalm 142 too, I pour out my complaint before him. And I checked verse 1. It doesn't start with thanksgiving. So has he not unlocked the door? Is the door still shut? Does God even hear him? <laughs> but the math we sometimes operate from, it's not the math we're supposed to. See, David complains. In Numbers 11, Moses certainly complains. In Numbers 11, the Israelites complain. But the Lord shows compassion on Moses and responds favorably to him. The Lord does the complete opposite with the Israelites. So why the different responses? What gives? Again, Moses kind of sounds like a whiny kid. Right? It's not the, the flowery prayers that we try to form in the King James Version. He doesn't address God as father. Right? Moses comes to God with his raw emotion. He lets his steam off. If he was a kettle, he'd be screaming. He might have been screaming, for all we know, at God in this moment. And God doesn't tell him, hey, watch your tone. God doesn't tell him, hey, get a grip. God doesn't say, ye of little faith. Right? God isn't phased in the least by Moses' prayer. Matter of fact, he answers his prayer. <laughs> he goes on to answer both Moses' prayer, the one about leaders and the one about meat. But what we should take note of that Moses does and we should do is that Moses vents vertically. He vents vertically through prayer. The Israelites, you see them venting horizontally to one another. So somebody needs this encouragement. Be honest with God. So many of us have been trained to either go to God the right way or we don't go to God at all. We bought into this lie that if you can't uh, put some thanksgiving on the front end, at the heart of Psalms, at the heart of your prayers, then God somehow doesn't want to hear it. I've talked about it before. When I was a new believer, somebody gave me the acronym ACTS. It's useful. ACTS, A-C-T-S, like the book. A is adoration. Give God praise. C is confession. Ask for forgiveness for your sins. T is thanksgiving. Give God thanks. S is supplication, where you ask for provision. And it's useful. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. Jesus tells us to ask, seek, knock, and be persistent in it. It's absolutely the reason for praying. Well, sometimes, let me tell you, I need acts to stand for anxiety, complaints, tantrum, and sulking. Like, that's what I need, right? In a moment where I'm like, I don't have the, the adoration and thanksgiving at the moment, but I still need to take this to God. This is what Moses was operating from. You got anxiety. How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? You got complaints. Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? Tantrum, if this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Soaking, what did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? But most of us wouldn't dare pray like this, right? Because we've been taught we start with thanksgiving and preface all our requests with Father God. And if we can't do it right, don't do it at all. So what happens either, one, we're superficial, or two, we don't pray at all. But let me tell you, God can only ever meet you where you are. Not where you think you need to be or where you want to be. Like we meet with God vertically, not diagonally. Like we're pretending we're over there when we're really over here. Because if we, if we take the bait on this lie, then we're not going to pray at all. 
The enemy would love that because a prayerless life is a powerless life. It's a faithless life. We won't follow. So he feeds us these half-truths and lets us take the bait. And we don't ultimately know why the Israelites didn't take their complaints to the Lord. It just says they complained within the hearing of the Lord. Again, not a good plan. So why not bring it to God? If he already knows what we need, why not bring it to him? Especially in the form of our complaints. He understands we're but dust, as it says in Scripture. None of us are Jesus. We aren't perfect. We all have complaints, and we can feel free to take that to him. Matter of fact, it's a better plan because if we don't pour out our complaints to God, so often they'll spill out in ugly ways somewhere else. If we're not pouring it out in reverse vertically, it'll spill out horizontally. You know, a prayerless people quickly becomes a grumbling people. I know this from experience, right? When, when I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, when I'm in the middle of it, if I'm not praying, if I'm not in God's word, if I'm not in his presence, I'll just become an ugly person. I've shared it before. It's like, it's like deodorant. You can go without it for days, but you're going to stink, right? I can go without prayer, but I begin, to, I begin to stink when I'm not pouring myself out to God. A prayerless people can become a grumbling people. We see it in Exodus. We see it in Numbers multiple times where the Israelites complain and God gets angry. Moses complains and God responds pleasantly. Like, what's the difference here? Moses vents vertically. Moses goes to God with his complaints. Right? Notice the difference. Moses has a prayer life. He has a place to pour it out so it doesn't spill out and make a mess of things. So the lesson, again, is vent vertically. Our impulse Often, our pull of our flesh is to complain horizontally. The, the pull of our digital age, complain digitally. <laughs> like Paul's explicit command that we looked at tonight was in Philippians. Don't complain or argue. That's 90% of my Facebook feed, right? <laughs> Can you imagine if he came back in the flesh and saw like somebody's average Facebook feed? He'd write a, a new book after Philippians and Colossians called Americans. And he said, get a grip, right? Be a light, right? Stop complaining and arguing because we're supposed to be a light horizontally, but so often we gripe horizontally. And if we look at Philippians, we see this isn't some like small hiccup. We just shrug off. No, it robs us of our witness, robs us of our calling. So maybe you'd say, well, if I'm struggling here, what's good medicine? The first is, is simple. Remember the blessings that you've received. Remember God's faithfulness, the miracles that so often get overshadowed by the complaints. Because complaining, it robs us of focus, robs us of energy. But gratitude, and if I just spend my morning, not all my morning, like five minutes in the morning just going over the ways God has blessed me, how so many of my prayer requests for, for health or for provision are because of blessings he's already given me, that's almost energizing. It's like manufactured momentum. Like grace sustains us, but so often, at least in my life, gratitude is what helps strengthen you know, good practice, when I was a kid at Thanksgiving, we'd go around in a circle. Can't do this yet. Raj can't even talk, right? <laughs> Most of my cousins are so young. Go around in a circle, and you all say one thing you're thankful for. Like, do that, but every morning with yourself. <laughs> That's how you take Thanksgiving and, and start living thankfulness daily. Again, grace sustains us, but it's so often gratefulness that will strengthen us daily. The second thing is, is like, these are my journals from the last couple years. If you do the math, I don't journal every day. The last one, as you can see, is autographed by Raj, right? <laughs> Signed copy, right? But some people don't have a journal. They have what they call Facebook, and it shows, right? Because every aggravation, every headache, every inconvenience, all this unfocused complaining just spills out and spills out. And eventually what that preaches is that God either can't or won't handle all your little, all your little things, maybe the big things. 
What are you supposed to do? Take that to God? Yeah, it's good practice. For me, not everybody journals, right? I'm not saying everybody here should journal, but for me, I just word vomit on a page. All my frustrations, all the things I'm thinking about. And it helps me kind of just fine-tune my thoughts before I pray. And then I, I lift that up to God. I'm like, all of this and then some prayers, right? And then I pray. But it helps me what David says in the Psalms. He says, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Whatever helps you pour out yourself to God and be honest and real with God, it's good practice. Do it all day, whether it's a journal, whether it's, it's some of us with a child or kids. You got to clear out a space in your closet where you can literally hide and get on your knees and pray for a little bit. Whatever it is that helps you pour out your heart to God, be honest with God, it's good practice. And listen, people can absolutely be this. Right? Having people that you can process with and bleed with, maybe even complain to and cry on their shoulder. That's, if that helps you to pour out your heart, everybody should have somebody that they can have these conversations with. But ultimately, the goal and the foundation is to take those things to God, to vent vertically. It helps keep life balanced. If you're not taking your emotions to God, there's a good chance that those other relationships will end up out of balance, out of whack, end up hurting them or they hurt you. Because if we don't talk out our emotions with God, if we don't talk out our complaints with God, we'll end up taking it out on others or we'll take it out on ourselves. We bury our complaints so often with all our other hurts and pain. And like I've talked about before, you're just putting all those negative things down at your roots, down at the seeds. And the fruit of that is you become either a cynic we're not just somebody that grumbles, but what Scripture would call a grumbler. But it's not just poetic either. It's physical. Headaches, upset stomach, elevated blood pressure, chest pain, all of these medically can come from just burying your stress, burying your complaints rather than dealing with them, talking them out, dealing with them in a healthy way. Our bodies and our spirits weren't meant to just digest and press down all our complaints. We're meant to deal with it and deal it to God in exchange for his grace. Again, his grace is meant to sustain us. Gratitude strengthens us. If I can have the worship team come up, I just want to close with a thought and a question. What is your quail? What's your quail? What's this guy? Right? Because the Israelites' beef was with the meal that God provided. They were sick of the manna. It wasn't enough. But the same way we see ourselves in the Israelites, the same way we're supposed to see ourselves in the Old Testament, Jesus is present in the Old Testament. So many things point to him. They're figures of Jesus. And, and manna throughout the Old Testament foreshadows and points to Jesus Christ. He's our daily bread. His grace is our daily miracle. He's all we need. Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that manna was provided not just to feed them, but to teach them the lesson that God was all they need, that he's the one that brings life. But the Israelites weren't content. They wanted more, more than just the man. The same way that Jesus came, he said, I'm the bread of life, and yet people wanted more. They wanted more miracles. They wanted more than Jesus. What else can we have? And we read scripture. I know I do sometimes. I read the gospels where Jesus is right in front of them. And they're like, oh, we, we need more miracles. You just fed 5,000, but do some other cool stuff. And I think, you fools. You fools, you guys are fools. But how often do we live in discontentment, wanting more, trying to find our self-worth or worth in something else? Every day, we're going to find our identity in something. Every day, we're going to find motivation to face the day somewhere or in something. 
And every day we're going to be filled and fulfilled by something. Is it Jesus? Is it the manna we've been given? Or are we clinging to quail? Psalm 16 says, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. What does that say? You're where I find my identity, my motivation. You're where I'm filled and fulfilled. Only Jesus has the resurrection life, eternal life, truly filling and fulfilling life. Everything we crave outside of Jesus will leave us in the grave. But Jesus has the life we need. Again, every day you will find your identity in something, your motivation in something. Every day you'll find fulfillment in something. And there's other things in life that may fill you for a time, but they can be taken away. Jesus never came. His grace never came. The cross never came. The empty grave never came. His promises never came. So what do you, every day, find your identity, your motivation, your fulfillment in? Is it Christ or is it some other version of quail? Because nothing else can fill you eternally with life. Everything else will leave you in the grave. So if we could stand tonight, Holy Spirit, sometimes we read the Old Testament, these stories, and we think, what on earth? (laughs) What am I even reading? Well, Holy Spirit, I thank you that every one of these stories can speak to us. Every one of these stories points to Jesus because of what Jesus means to us, what the cross means to us, what the work of the gospel and the good news means to us. So Jesus, we praise you again tonight. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would use this passage, your word, God, to convict, to encourage, to give us fresh perspective. But Jesus, I pray that we would truly see you tonight as the all-sufficient sacrifice. That's not meaning every day is going to be overjoyed and happy. We have to put on some artificial, superficial front. But God, I pray that we would feel true gratitude and thanks for the cross. And that would overflow in our lives. And that would be a part of our witness and calling in this region, Lord God. But help us tonight as we step back into worship. We praise you. And Holy Spirit, do work that only you can in our hearts and in our minds. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you.